Welcome to Asbury Pod. This week, we are discussing updates to the Asbury Park Arts and Culture Plan, and welcome back Carrie Turner from the Asbury Park Arts Council. We also welcome Eric Gallopo from Francis Kaufman Architects, who did the hard work of designing the Arts and Culture Plan, which will now be presented to the City Council. Welcome Carrie and Eric. Asbury Pod also gratefully acknowledges the support of Jen Hampton from the Parlor Gallery on Cookman Avenue in Asbury Park, who graciously let us record this episode in her lovely space. Thanks, Jen. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official city of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park, I mean pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark, everybody listen to Asbury Park, I mean pod. listeners we are taping this on sunday april 16th and we are about to talk to um people who put together the arts and culture plan for the city which we are very excited about carrie turner is a repeat guest and eric Lippo. so we're going to ask you to start with an intro carrie sure i'm carrie turner i am uh, the executive director of the asbury park arts council I um, was on here once before back in August, uh, just talking about the fact that one of our major goals was to work with the city to get an arts and culture plan created that would be adopted hopefully into the city's master plan. And so it was a bit of an unfunded mandate by the city. This isn't an intro. Sorry, Carrie. Here we are. <laughs> We're going to ask a lot about the right, plan, fine. but I'm detecting fine, a southern accent, so could we at least start with where you're from? <laughs> I mean, born and raised in Atlanta, and then um, came up north, and here I am now. So I'm <laughs> uh, not originally from Jersey, but live here, have been here for about 26 years. So there we are, and in Asbury for about 13 and Eric, you're born and raised. We always um, well, I'm not born, but okay. I am raised. You are uh, raised. Yeah, so uh, my father and my brother and I moved here in um, 1985 um, when I was uh, eight. And uh, we, I grew up on Fifth Avenue, um, and I live in the house that I grew up in. And uh, I, I always wonder, what's that like? Is that, is that like a cool thing, or is that like weird? It's a very cool thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of wonderful um, memories. Um, you know, growing up here at that time was very different. Um, but I would say that 
uh, growing up in Asbury Park led me to my eventual career, which as you will find out as we're talking later is urban planning and design. Um, and I have a kind of special focus on arts and culture and uh, institutional planning for universities and cities and working on streetscapes and urban designs type stuff. So this is sort of was right in my wheelhouse. I work for an architecture firm um, based in New York and Philadelphia. And so that's how I got hooked up with the arts and culture plan. I think if you grew up like in the burbs that like you're flee from, you wouldn't want to grow, go back to that house. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, growing up here, there was everything you could want, you know, like it, uh, there was a grocery store and there were like lots of kids hanging out in the streets also before cell phones and computers really existed. So we, the streets were where we hung out and it was the place to play um, and, you know, be young and the beaches weren't exactly functional at that time. And so you didn't pay to go on the beach, and the boardwalk was also in that. But you went on the beach, though, right? You, oh yeah, 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 we went on the beach, and the and the boardwalk had kind of like rolled up its carpet, so to speak, and, and there wasn't really much happening. So it was this beautiful ruin, but like we, you know, we can talk about for endless ages about why that is and how it's good or not good. Um, and so just growing up here was like a totally different experience, I think, that made me want to come back because, you know, after I finished college and, and decided to come back, um, it still felt like a place that had everything you needed while walking. You know, I don't like to drive. So yeah. <laughs> that's like really, I, I like living in a place where you can walk, getting everything you need. Well, everyone we've talked to who's grown up in Asbury has the same story. Like, they loved living here growing up. We have yet yeah, to... no, if I lived here growing up, mm -hmm. I definitely want to live in my childhood home, but living in yeah. Marlboro. Yeah, Marlboro. I think we have a whole episode dedicated to how much I hated Marlboro. Yeah. My, my, my mother and my father were divorced, and so summer, sometimes in the summer I'd have to go spend my time at my mother's house in the suburbs of Hillsborough, New Jersey. And like I had a clear favorite, <laughs> so yeah. growing up here was was also very diverse. You know, I, I was I was one of the only white kids on the block, um, and so leaving Asbury Park to go to college, I was very familiar with being around people who didn't look like me, or you know. So I think it was always part of that existence, and like I've always wanted to be more in a place where. I never like it when things look alike. We talk no. about this before when I visit my father in Florida and all the houses look alike. Yeah, yeah. He has to put something on the front lawn to because my sister and I can never find his house. <laughs> so, and God forbid we've had drinks. Mm. We're just knocking on everybody's door. Dad? <laughs> I, well, when I, see, when I see suburban developments like that, I always think of the book Wrinkle in Time. I don't know if you've read oh, yeah, that. Yeah. You know, when they're in the evil alter universe, every house looks the same. Same kid playing the same, with the I'm same red I'm immediately anxious when I'm in that. I'm immediately, and I couldn't even explain to you why, I'm just immediately anxious. Yeah. Anywho, back to the arts and culture plan. <laughs> well, we, have, we have zero listeners in Marlboro, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do we want them. We should also give a shout out to Jen Hampton, who's here, who's given us her space, her beautiful space. I think this is probably one of my favorite places now to um, to host because I get to look at beautiful art while we're, um, I get to get distracted by beautiful art while we're talking about art. So. 
Tell us everything we need to know about an arts and culture plan. Go. Oh, so I can go back to what I was trying yes. to say before. You're, you're trying to avoid talking you so, about yourself, Gary. No, so no, no, because I do not like to talk about myself. So why don't I just tee it right on up? Um, yeah. I think for the benefit of listeners, uh, and this might be a little bit of a rehash, you know, uh, the, the city back in 2016 re-examined their master plan, right? And this is a very bureaucratic exercise. Uh, that they need to do by state law. And just describe, or Eric, take a minute and just describe what, why cities have to do that every 10 years. Um, yeah, so I'm going to use some of this is where I get to pull out my like being a planner expertise. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, New Jersey has a statutory requirement that every city must have a master plan um, and they must look at it and examine its relevance every 10 years. And I, you know, that's a really good idea. Um, and the reason that cities must have master plans is because you can't have a zoning code without a master plan. And that's because you have to be able to look at how your zoning is performing and relate it to the goals that your master plan spells out. And if there's no relationship between those two, you have a big problem because the zoning doesn't represent the demands or the needs and the relevancy to the community. And so that re-examination of the master plan at a periodic time allows you to align what the community goals are to the policy and implementation tools that support those goals. So it's just a really great way to make sure that you're like continually looking at how the community is changing and the community needs, quite frankly, change over time. And we use our master plan all the time. I know Mike Manzella. Um, he used to talk about how often he would refer. So 2016, we're working on our master plan. Sure, you were, you were re-examining it. Um, and so one of the co-founders of APAC is Mike Sedano, uh, formerly the owner of his partner, Nancy, of the showroom here on Copeland. And Mike sat on the committee that was doing uh, part of the re-examination. And, you know, one of the things that came up was a distinct need for a separate arts and culture plan element, if you will, to the master plan. So that's when I was saying before an unfunded mandate. You guys, you guys did your reexamination report. I suspect, and Eric, check me if I'm wrong. It was adopted. The reexamination mm-hmm. report gets adopted, um, and it calls for specifically the need to ha- for the city to have an arts and culture plan. So it was um, it was something that was called for, but yet not really probably at the highest uh, <laughs> highest order uh, uh, on the city's plate in terms of things to get funded. That's where the uh, Asbury Park Arts Council, our very small group, decided that we might be able to help, which is we are a 501c3. We sort of frankly formed around the idea that we we needed that 501c3 status to be able to go get grant funding to pay for something like this. And that's exactly what we did and we got very lucky and that we had under with a previous uh, part-time ED gotten a small grant from Mammoth Arts for the arts and culture plan, but then last year in 2022, I think a lot of people know that the county had um, the county had a, a, an offering or a grant opportunity for nonprofits, and we applied for funds and received the remainder of the money from the county to underwrite this. So while our nonprofit got the funding for it, the whole, you know, and we are the ones that have a contract with FCA, which is where Eric works. Um, the entire process and project has been done under the guidance of the city, uh, specifically um, the Office of Planning and Redevelopment with Michelle Alonzo, 
um, and also the planning board, because the planning board had a subcommittee for the master plan re-examination, and it's the same group of folks on the planning board that are, that are part of the subcommittee that have been guiding uh, the creation of this document. So it is, there are some blurred lines and it has created some confusion, um, frankly, in the community as we've been out there because it feels like, oh, this is just APAC, this small group of people, and who are you, and, and why you? But really, um, we're kind of just a catalyst to help create something that the city has asked for. And we're doing it not over here and then bringing it to the city, but we're doing it with the city uh, and with the guidance of the city. And frankly, we, APAC, we're lucky enough to know some players um, both at the county and at the state in the arts field, and they have lent their expertise and sat on our steering committee as well. So we've been lucky enough, I think, as a city and as a group to have um, some guidance from, from folks doing it outside of the confines. So we have Eric who's a professional and we got very lucky that while he's a professional doing this, he also lives here. So he's got skin in the game more And than, he's on the planning board. Yeah, more, than, more so than if we had hired just some third party planner uh, who, you know, this would just be a contract for them. And I, I do feel, after having worked with him for so long, I feel very, uh, very, very fortunate that we've gotten him to, to sort of be our, our project lead from FCA on this project. And the, and the work you've done so far, has cost the, the, the taxpayers of Asbury Park zero, right? This was grant Nobody funded. Nobody email me about <laughs> what correct. this costs. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, and I think one of the, you know, to sort of just bring some color to that is that this type of planning where the master plan spells out the big vision within the municipal land use law for the state, there are other component plans that can be created that are sort of flesh out in more detail pieces of the master plan. And lots of communities decide, there, there's a list that you could you know, sort of do these plans from like um, a parks and recreation plan or an urban design plan or a housing plan or an arts and culture plan. And those are all pieces that can be created that further support particular elements of a master plan for the city that can be picked off like one at a time. So you like, master plan sets the big vision and then within that there may be focus areas that you want to do and so this was um, fortunately funded through money that came through the COVID recovery process and programs through the city so it cost the city taxpayers of Asbury Park myself included zero dollars um, and this helps us get potential grants right I mean arguably that this would help us yeah. get so so what would be a reason why we would do an arts and culture plan there's lots of reasons why. <laughs> if only someone on the council could answer that question. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, so I like, this is where I'll step in as a kind of professional arts and culture planner. <laughs> where, where shall we start? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the reasons to do arts and culture plans vary greatly from place to place. But the, the, you know, the kind of marquee reasons that you usually run across are economic development. Uh, community cohesion and quality of life. And those are sort of the three big reasons that you would do it. But then the kind of more tactical reason that you might do an arts and culture plan is those. So, so when you're out in the marketplace seeking funding that comes from either government or institutional sources, having a plan to point to is a tool. And so it gives you a way of sort of legitimizing that you have a coordinated set of steps that you're moving through to get from point A to point B. Funders really like to see that. 
it's very difficult to show up and be like, I have a great idea, but it's just my idea. It's much better idea, more strategic way of seeking funding and coordinating efforts to show up to funders and saying, we have an arts and culture plan that says we want to do A, B, and C, and here's uh, here's what my um, my initiative contributes to this plan more broadly. It makes a more compelling story for a larger vision of place and community that many funders look for when they're thinking about making those decisions. And when you touch on economic development, and Jen knows this as well because mm-hmm. she's on, you know, part of public art, trying to quantify for the public how public art is mm-hmm. you know, great for a town for whatever reason. Right. Um, it brings people to town to look at the murals. It gets people having conversations. It mm-hmm. gets kids more interested in art. But trying to quantify that to people who want um, potholes filled or... Um, whatever, their neighbor's grass lower than it is or something like that. It's like, it's a, it's a tough description for me to describe because it's a bit nebulous. Like I describe it, but it can be a bit nebulous. I'll give you my top 10 reasons. I I did it in council. I was leading into that, Carrie. No, no, because it's very good because I think you're right, Amy, and I said it in council that meeting. Um, Because somebody had gotten up and screamed about art. Yeah. Her name was Rita. Well, she wrote to the coaster, you know, and and she's not, she's not wrong. A lot of people ask the question, why should we, you know, prioritize art? And they're, you know, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I read into the record, Americans for the Arts, and a lot of it is sort of, um, you know, it's the long game. Totally. You know, it, it's the, it is the it is community well-being, and there are so many ways that it can play into that, because, you know, art is a broad umbrella, right? Art culture is a very broad umbrella. Um, but it really does, and it's frankly ways that hopefully can be ways that we can get together versus divide, you know? And that, that will be one of the things, is that it has the ability to create unity, I think, in ways that many other things do not. Um, so it it may be a little esoteric for folks, and you're right. It's hard when you see a giant pothole right in front of your house to be like, why do I care about that? Hmm. But it, it's probably a longer conversation. But as a, as a layperson, it seems pretty obvious that art funding seems to behave as an economic amplifier wherever it is. Or, well, no, where when it's done well within a, within a, um, a plan or a, a city. Am I, am I wrong about that? That it's not as obvious as it would seem? No, not to the general public. <laughs> to the general public, saying, yes. I mean, let about, me say this. I don't want to say all the general public because I can't say... I remember one day, knee-deep in this pandemic, um, you know, I run the boardwalk, and, and then there's the people who walk the boardwalk every morning. It's like all of us are the same people we see each other. So these um, two older women were walking through, and we're talking about how in the mornings we, we feel compelled to see hot tea string because it makes us feel better. And it's at the, you know, the height, it was during the height, of, or summer of the height of the pandemic, and it was like the one thing that it was like, let's just go look at some string for a while and feel a little better about the despair that <laughs> is going on in the world. Um, but when you quant- how do you quantify that? I don't know. It, it means a lot to me. I'll pay higher taxes to not feel slightly less despair. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll pay, I'll pay so, an extra 
so were whatever you, amount to were you, feel uh, less despair. You were experiencing catharsis on the... Uh, totally. Which is uh, on the Asbury Park Arts Council website. Thank it's you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think it's important, too, though, to know that this arts and culture plan is actually probably a lot less about the kind of endpoint events that you are describing that um, are the consumption of art. So, you know, Asbury, Asbury Park's economy is built on tourism. Like, we cannot deny that. Um, and, and I know we should do everything we can to diversify the employment base and make sure that as much employment is available. And according to your, it's getting worse, right? In terms of like, we're yeah. losing year-round residents. Yeah, you know, the, the, I, the demographically speaking, um, most of the demographic indicators that we researched in the performance of this plan suggest that Asbury Park is a gentrifying city. We didn't need to do very much research to know that that's true. Right. And so I think we have to think about how we describe the focus of the plan as being about the consumption of privately produced events and cultural activities. So, you know, like let's just separate in our head for a minute the kind of beautiful, wonderful public art, the amazing, fantastic concerts and events, and all of the things that people who are coming from elsewhere largely come here to consume. This plan actually says most of that's going to be like taken care of in the private market, and this plan isn't looking to necessarily increase the profile. There are some things this plan recommends about, you know, getting unused venues back into service that would largely serve the private market, but the majority of the things that are in this plan relate to how we can provide a better profile of artistic opportunities and participatory cultural activity for residents who live here year-round. And, you know, the biggest... What does that mean? So when you say that, that's a lot. What does that mean? Um, yeah, so <laughs> it is a lot, Amy. You're yeah. correct. Um, you yes, know, I think... Uh, so, you know, this, oh, that's a good reminder. You know, we did the entire performance of this plan in a kind of what we call the yes-and framework, which is a lesson from improvisational theater. And so whenever somebody told us, like, oh, you need to do more of this, instead of saying no or, like, deflecting, you respond in a yes-and framework. You say yes, and <laughs> you move on to whatever I'm else. I'm going to start doing that at the council. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And. <laughs> <laughs> it's really effective. You should try it. Um, and you know, so we um, did a lot of outreach to the community in general to understand what it was they felt they needed. And what we found was not that they were telling us that more concerts and events and you know things that they have to pay for to do are needed. And what is actually needed is a consistent understanding of how you would participate in your own artistic and cultural activities for low or no cost. And so that relates to how small community groups with limited resources might be producing events that people in their very limited social network or you know, cultural group could participate in, but then also that there was kind of a low understanding of where people might even participate in those types of events that aren't the kind of big marquee concerts that are drawing 
a lot of people into town. And so the plan actually recommends sort of a couple of different things around how we might think that happens. And the first is that while the city is doing a lot to coordinate events, it is the volume of private events that are happening here are kind of swamping out the ability of the city to coordinate a reasonable profile of community-based free public events that span the range of cultural groups that exist in the city. So, you know, I think that that's really important. And so we recommend that the city look at how that responsibility is actually separated. And this is where we get the, talking back about the benefit of economic development. So if there was somebody in the city who was responsible for coordinating all of the big private special events or even small private special events that happen, and then somebody who was more responsible for coordinating community-based activities and programs, largely free, um, that would give the community a way of trying to understand how to get into that process. You know, even things like the fees that are charged for using the park for a quinceanera are you know a barrier to some folks language barriers exist and so having somebody who has that sort of expertise to really engage the community about the types of cultural activity they want to and need to produce to kind of feel like they have a reasonable quality of life is really important and then the second thing is about how the facilities that provide space for all of that you know, kind of community-based cultural activity are, you know, even known about. Um, and this is also separated into two pots. It's sort of, we do have a lot of indoor community space in town. Almost none of it is either widely advertised, known about, or even accessible to the public. The biggest reservoir of community space in the city is currently owned by the Department of Education. And, you know, like, we're not here to vilify anybody at all, but... The State or Asbury Parks Board of Ed? This, the Asbury Parks Board of oh. Education. So all of the, you know, kind of gymnasium, recreational play fields, um, even like a community room type space, all of that profile of city-owned space is actually under the control of the Board of Education. And then on the other side, you have a lot of churches, community facilities, community-based groups who all have like a little community room here or a space there, but there isn't really a well-formed understanding of how you might even learn about that space or whether or not it's compatible with your mission, right? You know, like, some churches just don't want gay groups like you know we can't can't change that and it's not anybody's job to tell them what they can and can't do but um you know so there's this idea that there's a kind of level of community space in town that needs to be made more visible and so one of the first recommendations is actually quite simple which is to develop a searchable database that people in the community can say i want to host a knitting circle on tuesday night and now I know that these three spaces have a community room. Here's how much it costs and here's who I can get in touch with. This isn't even a city-owned space. And then over time, we would hope that the city and the Board of Education could come to some understanding about how all of the assets that we as citizens currently own could be made more accessible to the public for a broader range of cultural and sort of individual learning activities.
I'd like, you know, I just wanted to yeah. um, follow up on this. I thought, uh, you know, I watched your presentation. And so if you're listening, if you haven't, uh, if you want to know more about this, there's a great, Eric does a nice hour-long presentation. It's on the, uh, um, the Arts Commission's homepage. We can see this in greater detail. But one of the things that struck me was the, that you had pointed out in, your gra in one of your graphs is the, the dearth of inside space in year-round, right? Yeah. So this is the outsized, outsized influence of things like the uh, Stone Pony Summer Stage and like See Here Now, which are accessible outside entertainment and art venues. But then when the weather comes in and the tourists leave, you know, people yeah. people who want to run into circle can't find a place to just gather because yeah. there is there is space but no one knows it's there so it's a lot of uh, and I just re repeated what you just said but I thought that was like a really interesting part of your presentation that I had no idea that yeah. well, this space I existed. Say there, is, there isn't a lot of space one of the biggest complaints we get is um, people coming in wanting space that mm -hmm. is cheap and yeah. For knitting circles, book clubs, drawing classes. Yeah, yeah. And but you're so, saying there is, though, right? There, well, there is a lot of space. It's just hard to find it. Mm -hmm. You don't know where it is. You know, it's not a church's core mission to make themselves known as a place where they host events, right? You know, and so they're focusing on what their core mission is. And so there's this kind of gap. And, you know, that is where, you know, the plan also recommends that the city should actually develop a partnership with a third-party organization who might take on more of the responsibility of kind of creating the basics of these things and is sort of like answering to the city about what the priorities are. That third-party organization can also be doing their own mission-type stuff related to whatever it is, arts and culture, community development, whatever it happens to be, but that partnership with the city allows you to sort of fill that gap without putting burden on the city to do things that are also not maybe within its core competencies or core mission. And so having that partnership out in the community where they are looking for all of the available spaces, what programs are happening and how they might be produced and done is like just one way of bringing up the profile of available space and opportunity for community-based events. And to your point, Joe, is that what we did is we plotted, um, what we researched as many recurring um, events as we could find. And so that's like um, uh, looking at all of the different concert venues, all of the different parades and festivals in the park, anything that we could identify that was happening at, at least on an annual basis. And we plotted it and what we found is not surprising um, in some contexts, which is that the level of artistic and cultural endpoint activity, so like events, parades, things that you can measure like in a moment, um, is much higher in the summer than it is in the winter. Um, however, when you separate out the free and public events from the private and paid events, what we found is that there's almost nothing happening outside of the tourist season that is free oh, and that's public. And the reason that we can theorize is because there is a lack of high quality, low cost indoor space for that community activity to actually take place. We could have analogous programs like the fabulous um, uh, Springwood Fall Festival um, or the one that happens in Sunset Park. We could have analogous type of community programming that happens in an indoor sense, you know, throughout 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 the year. 
And that's really probably the biggest recommendation of the plan that people probably gravitate towards the most, which is what we've identified is the need for a kind of highly identifiable community center within the city. No, you guys made that recommendation. And you know, we, we all, first of all, like a lot of times these plans are like, it's a plan, right? I've read a lot so you of, of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like this plan for a couple of reasons. One, I like the recommendations. You, you did that throughout the plan. And two, the community space has been like this thing that we've been bouncing around and people, people bring up places like the Westside Community Center, which is, you know, maybe on the rebirth. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not clear on that. Um, but creating our own community space that we would have control of and building and, and do programming in is absolutely on the radar absolutely. for us as the council. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, if you wanted to turn around to any state entity or anywhere that you normally no, it's on our radar. funding help, a plan like this would nothing but support your argument yeah. to the yeah. state. So two, two shout outs I'm going to give. One, who I think is doing a great job, but for years it was a desert, is the library. Mm -hmm. yes. So the library was a desert of programming mm -hmm. for decades. Let's be clear, decades. <laughs> and recently, and under the leadership of Kathleen Melsger, I may be saying her last name wrong, she's doing a great job with the programming at the library. So I want to just give her a shout out, which is where you did your mm -hmm. um, presentation. I think she's doing a really good job at mixing up the programming there. And um, what was like one of the most surprising things, Carrie, working on this plan that, that, you, that you went into the plan thinking the opposite? I'm not sure I had any preconceived notions because honestly, I, again, we won't talk too much about Carrie, but um, I don't see the future, you know, I was frankly looking to this process to learn more because of, you know, because of my history here and why I came here to work on the boardwalk, you know, my purview was very narrow for a very long time. Um, and then I, I did some other work as a consultant where I looked at, you know, environmental issues that were all throughout town and got myself a little more acquainted with some land use issues, again, strictly land use, strictly environmental, um, throughout. And it was truly my hope that going into this, we would meet folks and learn more. And it would be people that I may have never had a chance to meet otherwise, or I, I had heard their name and not met them. And, you know, that, that has exactly happened. So. You got to give me a minute to think if there's anything that has surprised me. <laughs> I mean, uh, nothing has really shocked me, if you will. Um, it has been very interesting to, to just learn more and to see what's going on um, that maybe I didn't know about. Because, you know, the city certainly has, at a 30,000 foot view, you know, I think most people know, and this is either good or bad depending on where you sit. It has a reputation for, you know, it's Bruce, right? Like when you think arts, you just think Bruce or music or, and it's just so much deeper than that, you mm -hmm. know? And I think anybody who lives here actually knows that. But it, it can, I have a Google, um, an Asbury Park, like Google, what's this thing called? Alert. Where, there you go. Me too. So you get the thing every day. And, you know, I mean, that's what is at the top of the page all the time. And mm -hmm. Even when it's from like Kansas City or, something else. It's, it's typically that and it's typically the waterfront, but you know, folks who've lived here, and I mean, I'm a dope for saying that they're only being a 13 year resident, but there is so much more rich history here that is very, very, very interesting that gave rise to Bruce, frankly, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like a, that is um, something that would be wonderful to, and, and like, I think the work of AP AMP is working on that in terms mm -hmm. of capturing some of the history 
uh, or a lot of the history rather of, of Springwood Avenue. Um, so just getting to know groups like AMP a little bit better uh, has been, so it's not, there's nothing I can say that comes to the top of mind in terms of a surprise, but I can tell you that it's, it has been, I think it's the beginning for me personally of some relationship building um, versus you know, an end point. Um, because at some point we'll talk, and I don't know where we are time-wise, you know, there's a lot of, this is a dense document, you know, in terms of where we're going, and there's lots of recommendations. Um, and one of the things that we're thinking about internally is like, this is, and again, this is why I make um, the point, or I hope we're making the point, that this becomes, we, we envision, a city-adopted document. This will ultimately become the city's vision, right? And so it's not just, my group to implement it. This is sort of, we want to then, what next, right? Talking to the city about how do we work together to implement this. You have lots of community partners. We're not the only one. There are many recommendations. How do we you know, work together in a very uh, efficient manner to, to, to make some, tra uh, or gain traction rather with some of these. And Eric was really, you know, Joe pointed it out, you know, in the presentation, he goes very diligently through some very easy first steps. Mm. You know, every recommendation is broken down into some sort of, here are some steps, there's some low-hanging fruit, and then there's, you know, the five to ten-year range plan. But, but that, the point, the one thing you came back to repeatedly was the lack of an index, a searchable index for space that already exists. And that's mm -hmm. low-hanging, easily achievable. Yeah. You know, if only someone on the council would, oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, what I liked about the presentation also is the breadth of like, when we say arts and culture, the breadth of activities you're talking about is not see here now and stone pie. Like you mentioned knitting circles, but also you mentioned lifelong learning, like space for, I guess, you know, adult mm -hmm. high schools or, you know, mm -hmm. or continuing ed courses or senior citizen courses. You know, there's a whole, you know, it's a, just the idea, the focus seemed, the focus is on, you know, quality of life and making SRA Park a year-round livable space. For, you know, for those of us here year-round, mm -hmm. what are you doing uh, you know, October through May when the beach is closed and the tourists are gone, you can right. still thrive and make it the place you want to live you know, um, and thrive when, you, when you're here. And I was surprised also uh, when you were talking about the, the, lack, the decline in um, year-round residents, that was a sort of a shocking number to me, like 10% since 1990, that's a, quite a bit of, uh, of people, So there, you know, which could lead to an oddly uh, um, a dearth of resources, right? Oh yeah. yeah, you know, it's such a complicated and, you know, in some senses an intractable problem because first of all, when you look at those numbers, what they are measuring are the census-counted census individuals. And so it isn't actually giving you an accurate picture of what the true population of Asbury Park is on maybe an average weekend, but it's giving you, a, you know, mm. a, 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 a relatively accurate picture. And so what you have is a, as you have a declining year-round population, you also have a declining economic base to support the very businesses that provide the brand of Asbury Park as a place to go. And so when we think about arts and culture as a tool for economic development, the easiest way to connect it is this. In my, in my mind is this, is that as you work to increase the year-round quality of life and you, people feel that they have the, all of the opportunities that they need to, to live whatever they think a full life is and the, the right opportunities for their children, for them in midlife and in later life, 
then you can start to think about the economic base being sufficient to sustain the basics of what people would think is a high, you know, a high quality year round. And I'm not talking about a $30 a meal dinner. I, I don't need that on a Tuesday. I need a $5 hamburger, you know, or, or something like that. And food is as much a part of culture as anything else. Mm -hmm. But I also would like to know that on a Wednesday night, there's a place that I could go where I feel like there might be something happening, mm. right? And so when we think about a community center, it doesn't actually have to be quite so limited to sort of like a small, narrow, like a narrow slice of culture. Mm -hmm. It is actually and will would be most successful if it brings in as many potential partners to program that space as possible. So the library, is a wonderful building and has suffered for decades from deferred maintenance. The rising property values that have allowed it to improve its programming and start to stabilize the actual building will have to continue for decades in order for them to catch up to where they should be. And then we have the very reality that the building that the library is in was designed at a time when the model of a library is just unrecognizable to what we would think a library should do today. Libraries are noisy and messy and fun and engaging spaces where community members want to spend time. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a community center includes a component of the library that might not be easily placed in the existing facility. First of all, making it handicap accessible is a big challenge. And so you could imagine that something more like an information commons or a kind of like learning lounge yeah. is a component of a community center. Just like you might have a space for APTV to do their actual production facilities or a podcasting room where we could do this and anybody in the mm -hmm. community who has an interest in doing or learning about podcasting could mm -hmm. do that sort of thing. So when you start to think about all of the potential partners and programmers out there in the city who could contribute to what that space is, it becomes easier to get over the hump of like, oh my God, this is a huge thing. And the good news is that when you think about breaking it up again, it's the first thing to do is to study it to do, you know, you might have to spend some money, but not, but not a ton, to actually say, okay, this is what is in a community center. Here are all the places it could be, could because the reality is, could very well be a reconstituted West Side Center. It could very well be inside a reused Barack Obama Middle School. It could be developed by a third party nonprofit developer mm. and then handed over to the city, you know, so you don't have, you know, there's all sorts of ways that it could be provided, but you have to study them first and sort of like make some basic decisions. That's a pretty low cost prospect. And that at the end of that, you then start to understand what it's gonna cost you and how much time it's gonna mm. take over the long run to make it happen. This conversation is reminding me of our conversation with Reverend Parriott, uh, who, you know, born in Asbury Park in 1935, still lives here. And he, you get a sense from when you were talking to him about growing up in the 40s and 50s that there was space for people everywhere, yeah. all over town. You know, there was 
dance uh, people where people could dance, restaurants. Uh, like there was so much community you say space. Space all over town, restricted by race. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, so yes. let's let's yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, oh, yeah we like, we should absolutely that yeah yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, he he, he but uh, you know, he clearly talks we had about a that. Black fire and police department that weren't allowed on the east side. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you listen, his his um, yeah, description was uh, is shocking, right? You didn't realize how how petty that stuff was. But he does mention multiple community centers on the west side that where kids could go. There was you know dances and things like that that just don't seem to be. They just sort of mm-hmm. evaporated, right? And not just here. That seems to have happened in communities all over the country at some point. Like the you know my my dad's hometown in Pennsylvania, there was people went you know there were CYO spaces and things. All that stuff sort of like. Uh, disappeared after a while. So now we're, trying, I guess, you know, in plans like this, we're actively engaging, trying to bring those kind of community spaces back. Mm-hmm. Um, what I see all the time is the first thing that's cut when you run the risk of taxes going up or, or whatever is art, right? That's why I think we all work on the art tax mm-hmm. to ensure, you know, the percent, yeah, percent for art. Percent yeah, for and art. I say this is somebody on the council fighting for the 10K for the murals every year that I have to be put through the ringer. You know, it, again, it's the first thing that's cut when things go awry and, well, and Asbury things go awry quite a bit. That's why one of my favorite recommendations in the plan is that we collectively, again, uh, examine all of the myriad ways that there are to raise money for uh, an arts and culture fund that the city would have to administer. And it's not just the tax is definitely one of them, don't get me wrong, or the trust as you will. Um, um, I'm going to get. You want to just describe what that is really smacked. Nobody knows what that was. Uh, certainly, yes, absolutely. So Nobody knows when you say art trust. Well, because what you're really saying is art tax. It is. It is. Ultimately, yes, that is what it is. Uh, I feel like when we do that, I'm, and oh. this is just, I'm just getting it on my own soapbox. You know, I get it. I get why you do that. But I think people see it. It's insincere to, to me. I got you. Well, it's interesting because what. I think the right way to think about it is that the goal is to stabilize funding for arts and culture and recreation, mm-hmm. right? And so if, as long as you include that recreation in there and remind yourself that this is supposed to be focused on opportunities for the community to participate and realize their own creative impulses. Mm-hmm. And so what you want to think about is it doesn't necessarily have to to be a tax that's borne by residents. And there are other ways to include that money, but in a way that makes it a predictable amount from year to year. And as long as you identify what your priorities for that money are from year to year, it becomes easy to think about how to spend it. For example, there are a lot of sources of funding that would have zero impact on taxpayers currently living in the city, cannabis revenues, for example. I, you know, and I know people will talk about how they don't support it and things like that. But there People are, don't support cannabis revenue? Can, well, they don't support cannabis being sold in town. They'd have to okay. open up a, so open we a would store. Have to, you know, so, but like a dispensary that, you know, the, you could say all of the sales tax revenue of that product being sold in town 
can be used for this. That's a, that's a source that has no impact on an existing resident. There are other types of urban enterprise zone, you know, like monies that come through. We could decide that for all new city bond issuances, that there's a small percentage that would be included for arts and culture. For example, the $22 million bond floated for the recent firehouse, badly needed firehouse. Um, a quarter percent of that would have netted $50,000 for the arts. That's more than you get in a year from your current line item budget appropriation. But if you're starting to think about how for every type of infrastructure project, we wanna make sure that some consideration is in here for how we express ourselves as a creative place, that's important. But I also wanna take like a hard left turn here <laughs> and just remind us that we do have to talk about race in this particular effort as mm -hmm. we should with all planning efforts. Because when we talk about full-time residents, fully 50% of our current residents are minority residents and the vast majority of our year-round residents live uh, west of Main Street. The two largest population centers in town are the southwest quadrant of town and the northeast quadrant of town in terms of how many housing units there are. And I think we anecdotally and through you know, certain research know that the year-round population on the west side of town, and I mean broadly northwest and southwest, is higher than it is on the east side of town. And so when we think about how race has informed so many decisions that have been made in Asbury Park, Joe, you pointed out that the loss of community space is a symptom of disinvestment in the year-round community. And so the plan is saying, all right, we need to get ourselves up to a basic level of amenity so that the quality of life of these residents is improved. And it's not necessarily about race, but when you know that 50% of your population that is currently living year-round in town is you know, African-American and 60% of your population is African-American or another race, um, then you really have to start to think about what the most appropriate locations for such facilities would be. And you know, my advice here is it should be where the people are and it should be where the programs you know, would be most utilized and accessible. So the decisions about location might be very highly correlated to where you know, the largest population centers in, in town are. And in the performance of this plan, um, one of the surprising things um, that, well, it, it actually isn't surprising. The, the, the not surprising thing is that there's a vibrant, cultural and artistic community that has no visibility beyond their very immediate communities. And that that is a problem that we can solve in lots of ways. So when the city thinks about how to improve visibility for local creators, we should be looking at every opportunity for taking local creators and amplifying their products in every part of the city. So when we have large concerts like See Here Now, you know, 
a huge economic benefit for our city, a wonderful marketing opportunity. We should really be working with them to say, can we get a local stage downtown that is free, only showcases local acts and has a mix of genres, types, and styles that are culturally appropriate and relevant and expressed. So can we have a hip hop stage? Can we have, you know, can they do Latin music? Can they do, you know, like, like this, the, the types and styles that are being showcased in the touristic areas of our town are not broadly representative of the styles and genres that are being produced by the people who live here. And so there's this disconnect that we have to sort of think about how we make sure that the community who is living here year round has access to the facilities they need to explore each other's art and culture, to learn how to produce those things, and then the venues outside of that particular geographic area to showcase the literal richness that we don't necessarily see because of the dominance of culturally produced art in the broader city. Sorry if that was long-winded. <laughs> Wake up, everybody. We're back. <laughs> we have to start to wrap up because we are at 50 minutes and people stop listening really after 45. Um, so both of you just give us three takeaways. Eric can go first so Gary can think. Three takeaways So six takeaways total. Six takeaways total. They can't be the same ones. They have to be <laughs> Maybe we should tag team like one off because then like we can't take each other. Well, how about I just say what's Well, let me just say this. You know what I say to people when I give speeches? If you if you listen to anything I say today, particularly girls in politics or something like that, like here's the thing you have to remember. What You have to run or you have to like what whatever it is that I say. But if I've talked for 20 minutes, you haven't listened for 18, just please walk away knowing this one thing from what I said. Okay, well, how about those? This is an arts and culture plan that is currently it's in production. We are nearing the finish line. Why don't I tell you what's next? Because the idea sure. is, is that an actual document, lots of folks have seen a presentation, but an actual document will be, is being produced and will be submitted to the planning board. The planning board will then have, I believe, a month they're going to take to review it, and then it will appear before the planning board at a meeting. Um, we hope that that's in June, if that's not, you know, completely official as yet. Um, and then, you know, if all goes according, if all is well, uh, the planning board would adopt it, then the document is, you know, the official city document. The question then becomes what next, and that is what we're still talking amongst ourselves and with everybody about. It will be a city document. We want to engage the city about how they would like to see community partners engage them, you know, so that's what's next. But I would say, you know, of all the things that folks have heard, uh, what do I want you to take away? This is a city plan. While APAC may have been um, a catalyst for it, uh, we would like folks to think of this as a city's vision. You know, Eric and Carrie do the Eric and Carrie show and we're seeing a lot, you know, but at the same time, he is a professional planner who has done, you know, put this together on our behalf. Uh, we've been guided by the city and this ultimately will be a city plan and not what, what i'm trying to distinguish here is that this is not an impact plan per se right uh, we can't hide from the fact that we got the money and we helped get it you know pushed it forward but it is not in fact just something that we've you know sat in the corner and drummed up i do want people to understand that and in doing that i want to remind people that it didn't cost the city anything <laughs> 
uh, because what I would like Zero dollars. to, you know, because <laughs> so what this didn't cost anything, and your potholes have not been filled. Right. So right, this didn't cost the city anything at this level. But what we're hoping, what we're doing is, is handing the city or working with the city to create, as Eric said earlier, a tool, a tool that can be used by the city, that can be used by other groups, you know, and it's a framework to move us forward towards uh, what we believe are some community-identified goals. Um, and you know, so we would like folks to um, you know embrace what's in here because it's what we've heard. You know, we again, this is this was done through community outreach and then through the lens of someone who is uh, a professional in producing these documents, which I am not. That's him. So I'm going to let him talk about his takeaways. <laughs> oh wow! <Do> we, <laughs> without all right, that's one. Five more to Come go. Come on, <laughs> that was four and a half. You know, what I would like to say is that, you know, uh, I've done arts and culture plans um, in many cities throughout the country, and this is by far the most personal one for me, having been a resident of Asbury Park for so long and really just feeling like this is my home and my community. Um, and in the performance of this, I have learned so much about the richness of our culture and what this plan comes down on the side of is making sure that the year-round community has access to the both organizational infrastructure within the city to help them understand the pathways for producing and participating in arts and culture and the facilities that are needed to support all of that, which we don't currently have. And then the other thing is how we transition the brand of Asbury Park from a place for music to a place where inclusion and creativity are the basis of what makes it great to live here. And thinking, looking at every opportunity for every light post, every trash can, every bench, every bump out in the street, every line that we draw on the street as an opportunity to convey that we have a vibrant artistic and cultural community here that is the reason people come, not that we need to bring art and culture from elsewhere to make this a place that people wanna come, that it is our own diversity and our own strength that we can put out as our brand to the world that will make it continue to be a tourist destination that is derived from our own particular mix of wonderful culture. Those are my three takeaways. Yeah, excellent. Great job. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, everybody.